Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin. I am not part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho, but I have been coming around for a while. My family joined Jericho in 2016, and I spend my weekdays at Trinity Western University working with uh, supporting and encouraging prospective students and current students in the graduate theological education programs there. So that's how I spend my time, and I really enjoy that. Uh, This is the third week of our summer series called The New Exodus, one of the most foundational and important events in the history of God's people prior to the birth and ministry of Jesus Christ was an event known as the Exodus, in which God rescued the Israelite people from their enslavement in Egypt and brought them into the land that he had promised to give them in current day Israel and Palestine. And the people lived there for centuries, but eventually and this is recorded in uh, many books of Scripture in the Old Testament, eventually due to the corruption of the people and their disobedience to God's command and their refusal to heed God's repeated warnings over decades and even centuries delivered through his messengers, the prophets, God dispossessed the people from their land, and many of them went into captivity in Babylon and Assyria in present-day Iraq. Fortunately, due to God's love for and faithfulness toward his people, it didn't end there. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe a second or a new exodus event where God again brings the people out of captivity and into the land that they had once occupied. We do have booklets available for this series. Um, I don't know if there are any at the back there. Yeah, there's some there. Anybody wants one? You can just put your hand up if you don't have one already. Um, These offer some question prompts and space to journal some of your reflections. There's also a number in there that you can text your questions to um, about anything that you've been hearing in this series. Um, There will be, and there will be responses in the uh, upcoming Sundays to some of those questions. So feel free to ask any questions. If you think I'm totally off base on something, you can text that in, and I'm happy to talk to you about that. Um, But we want to engage with you. It's not just a monologue. We want to have a dialogue with you about what you're hearing today. So let's briefly review where we've come to so far in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. About 50 years after God's people were taken into captivity, the king at the time, Cyrus, allowed a contingent of exiles to return to Jerusalem to take stock of the damage and make plans to rebuild the temple. The exiles returned, and they brought with them all the things that had been looted from the temple when it had been originally destroyed, and there's a whole list Uh, in Ezra in chapter 2, where it just talks about we brought this many bowls and this many, uh, you know, all the other accoutrements of worship that had been taken away from the temple. They brought them all back. And once they arrived, they were determined to get to work and lay the foundation of the temple. And by the time we get to the book of Nehemiah, which immediately comes after the book of Ezra, the temple's been rebuilt, but the walls of the city have yet to be reconstructed. And Nehemiah, He's living in Babylon. He's a servant of the king at the time. Has a visit from some people who have been living in Jerusalem, and his heart is stirred up to go help out the people and rebuild the wall. He asks the king to be allowed to go, and through a miracle of God, the king blesses the project and offers financing. He offers resources and guarantees of safe passage to allow Nehemiah and those with him to go. So Nehemiah inspects the walls and organizes the people into working groups, and they began to tackle the work in sections. So that's where we've come to so far in those two books. 
My passages today are chapters 4 through 6 in Ezra and chapters 4 and 6 in Nehemiah. Now, um, guaranteed, I'm not going to read you five chapters this morning. I won't be able to read all of those. So allow me to provide an overview that captures the mood and the nuances of the story, and then we will dip down into the text at a few points. By this point in the story, whatever optimism had carried the community through their promised land, through their journey into the promised land, if it wasn't already waning, and it probably was to some point because they'd been at these building projects for a while, if it wasn't already waning, now it will be severely tested by the opposition to the work of God that God had called them to undertake. So as the story unfolds, let's keep in mind two questions. First, what does this story show the readers and hearers that opposition could look like? Second, what does this story show about the possible responses to that opposition? And so I want to highlight both of those as we work through some examples from these chapters. So already in chapter 2 of Ezra, which we've seen in past Sundays, the Israelites who were, were rebuilding the temple began to encounter some opposition, but it really ramps up in chapter 4. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Ezra chapter 4. Uh, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. The book's about, uh, about a third of the way through these Bibles that we have here. Ezra chapter 4. And I'm reading from the first verse of that chapter. It actually all starts out pretty innocently enough. There's actually not a lot of red flags right at the beginning of the chapter. So there's other people who are living in this area. The, it, the, the land actually hadn't been entirely depopulated. Other people had moved in. And so these other people come to these newly arrived uh, Jewish people who had come back into the land. And they said... Let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. We have sacrificed to him ever since King Ezharadon of of Assyria had brought us here. So according to the book of Ezra, there had been 42,000 people, uh, men, women, children, had come back to undertake the task of rebuilding the temple. So not a small group, but I imagine rebuilding a temple is no small feat. So when I first read this, I think to myself, it seemed like it'd be absolutely no-brainer for God's people that they would welcome the help especially from people who say, we seek God and sacrifice to him, as these people say that they do. But then we read in verse 3, and this surprised me, but Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other leaders of Israel replied, you may have no part in this work. We alone will rebuild the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. The leaders of the returned Israelites clearly had a very specific idea of how this project was going to go down and who could participate. So it left me with a question. Why would the Jewish leaders turn down help from perfectly willing volunteers in a project that's so big? The people who approached the builders were those who were forced by the empire to resettle in the Jewish lands after they had been largely depopulated when the people had gone into exile. These people had been living in the land for decades. Many of them had been born there. Frequently, they had married some of the Jewish people that had been left behind. Not all of them had been taken away. Some had been left behind. The men married the Jewish women that were left behind. And these become the Samaritans that show up a few times in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And if you're familiar at all um, with the Samaritans in the New Testament, the Jewish people don't think too highly of them, to say the least. As far as the Jewish 
returned Jewish people were concerned, these Samaritans were half-breeds who couldn't worship God correctly no matter how hard they tried. And often they combined worship of Yahweh with worship of other local deities that they were used to and using other local traditions and practices. So the Jewish leaders refused to let them help. Though in the end, it's interesting, once the temple is completed and some of the Samaritans have abandoned their objectionable worship practices apparently and have become part of the Jewish community that worships in the new temple. And that's in Ezra 6.21. No matter in what tone the Jewish leaders spoke, there's hardly any way to soften the weight of these words, I think. And to me, they seem downright dismissive and scornful. I can imagine the look on the Samaritans' faces in that moment. Shock gives way to confusion, then disappointment, and then anger. And whether you think the refusal was right or wrong, whether you think the Jewish leaders made the right call, and we can talk about that, the Samaritans were extremely upset with what they undoubtedly saw as unjust and exclusionary treatment. And so what happens in the next few verses hardly seems surprising. Verses 4 and 5. Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. They went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. Now, it may seem almost too obvious to say, but I think it's really important to say here and to remember, because this is going to underlay what I'm talking about. Nearly always, opposition arises from interpersonal conflict. The Jewish leaders had zeal to rebuild the temple and undoubtedly were committed to their way of approaching the task. But that didn't make it any easier for them to say or any easier for the Samaritans to hear. It didn't matter that the work of God's, the work was God's special work or that the people were God's special people. The conflict was real. The project was not some abstract, emotionless task, but something tangible that all of the people felt really passionate about. And those passions clashed in a very real way. For each of us, when we take a stand on a certain issue, or commit to an activity, or pursue something in our path and our spiritual lives, that vision that we have, that passion that we have, will rub others in our families, in our social circles, in our jobs, our communities, most definitely in the Twitter sphere somewhere, in the wrong way, because they're equally attached. Those people that oppose us are equally attached to their own ideas of how things are supposed to be. And it's really hard for any of us to separate our ideas and our identities. So people may take things personally. It's actually pretty much guaranteed people are going to take things personally. So all this to say, whatever opposition one may face is not random, It's not abstract, but it's deeply personal, and it's predictable often. And so we confront and move through opposition at a personal level, eyeball to eyeball, toe to toe with those who oppose us. Can you think of a time when you encountered pushback for doing something that you thought was right or valuable or necessary? How did you feel? And how did you feel about those who are opposing you? You may have noticed right at the end of verse 5 that it describes the timeline of the opposition that the people faced. 
Under both Ezra and Nehemiah, the opposition is not just one and done. There is an active, constant, protracted campaign of enmity and harassment from the people in the area. The harassment lasts for years, under the reigns of two different kings, no less. And this shows us that the opposition can endure. And we need to be prepared for this. Whereas we're already tempted to take things personally, and we often do when we get into these kind of clashes, especially when it comes from those who are closest to us, the fact that it doesn't just blow over can make it that much less bearable. We may feel powerless to do anything to speed up the process because we can't change what other people think, do, or say, though we try. And so the opposition and the conflict drags on and on for days, weeks, months, years, variously simmering or bubbling over, depending on what's happening. And we have no choice but to hold on, to wait, and to see what God will do. Likewise for the Israelite people as they sought to restore Jerusalem and the temple to what it had been. Decades later, once the temple had been rebuilt, Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem's aid by helping to rebuild the walls. After he does a thorough inspection of the state of the walls and gets the community started on the building project, a man named Sanballat, and along with two of his cronies, they start giving them grief. So if you'll flip to the next book, uh, Nehemiah, again, chapter 4, Verses 1 to 3, we read these words. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that they were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're even doing? Do they think they can just build a wall in a single day by offering up a few sacrifices? Do they, think, do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap? And charred ones at that. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked on top of it. They subsequently plot to fight against Jerusalem, invade the city, and cut everyone down. That's verses 9 and 11 in that chapter. What often makes opposition hard to predict and prepare for is the various tactics that it can manifest itself as. Opposition can take many forms. Throughout Ezra and the times, uh, throughout the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, their opponents variously used threats of violence, intimidation, outright lies, innuendos, rumors, and getting people on the wrong side of the authorities. For example, the opponents of the Jewish people go so far as to write a letter to the king full of lies about the plans for rebellion. This is back in Ezra chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. So they say this, the king should know that the Jews who came here to Jerusalem from Babylon are rebuilding this rebellious and evil city. They have already laid the foundations and will soon finish its walls. And the king should know that if the city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, it will be much to your disadvantage for the Jews will, ma- will then refuse to pay their tribute, customs, and tolls to you. There is no indication in the text that this is actually true. This is a complete fabrication from the, uh, from the enemies of the people. Has anyone ever lied about you? Has anyone ever spread rumors about you? Has anyone ever 
gotten your boss on your case, maybe, for something that you never did? Or turned family members or friends against you? Do you remember how you felt in that moment? How did it unfold? Was there any long-term relationship damage or opportunities that actually became closed to you after that? Did you feel the burden of injustice? I think noted Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay sums up opposition well. One way or another, the work of God generally meets with adversaries. Sometimes it's our fault. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes people just want to oppose something because it's good. The story reminds its readers not to be surprised when this is so, and not to be too discouraged because opposition may not have the final word. I would amend that and say, will not have the final word. So the king, who received this letter about rebellion, was evidently persuaded by it, which is funny because he was the one who told the people to go back and rebuild the city in the first place. So he didn't seem to have a problem with it then. But for whatever reason, whatever geopolitical issues were happening, he was more sensitive maybe to this idea of rebellion. So the king sends back a letter and he commands, therefore, issue orders to have the men stop their work. That city must not be rebuilt except at my express command. So the Lord, uh, so the work on the temple of God in Jerusalem had stopped and it remained at a standstill until the second year of of the reign of King Darius of Persia. That's Ezra 4, 21 and 24. If you look at the timeline, that's actually 16 years. Imagine that for a minute. Sometimes opposition may, may seem to stop God's work. Can you imagine what the people have felt? They had come to the land, the land of their ancestors, the land that they had been away from for decades, with the hope and expectation that they were going to be part of something big, something huge, They had laid it all in the line. They had moved across nations and kingdoms and put themselves in the Lord's service. Even as they experienced opposition so far, no matter how hard it was in the moment, and although at some level, I suppose, they probably feared that the building project may be foiled, I wonder how many of the people honestly thought that something like this could actually happen. And when it did there is probably no sense that anything would continue at any point in the future. They said, the king is against us. That's the only reason why we're here in the first place. Now the king is against us. What is there left for us to do? How could this possibly be? This is God's work. What, God was, what was God doing that God should have allowed this to happen? Did we all come here by mistake? Should we just move back to Babylon? We're certainly more comfortable there. Consider um, for a moment a time when you thought, a time when something you desperately hoped for, and you believed that it was something God wanted for you or from you, consider a time when that fell apart. What did you think about it? In that moment, what was going through your mind? Did you have a hope that something might happen next? How did you feel? Were you angry, sad, hurt, disappointed, frustrated, confused, despondent? 
If you can remember such a circumstance, could you just sit with that feeling for a moment? Maybe you're in the midst of that right now. I don't know. And then consider that this just wasn't one person or even a family, but thousands of people, a whole ethnic group who had been on mission for God for years and all of a sudden it was over. 16 years. Practically a generation. I have a hard time imagining what the people did. Except just to go about doing what they needed to do to carry on and feed their families. What else would you do? They're here because God brought them here, but now what? So they just did what they could. And then at the end of these 16 long years, Ezra chapter 5, it almost pops up like nonchalantly. It's kind of strange. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Iddo, prophets to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. And Haggai and Zechariah, by the way, have their own books in the Bible. You can read those toward the end of the Old Testament. They prophesied in the name of the Lord, or the name of God of Israel, who was over them. God who was over them. And Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, responded by starting again to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them and helping them. After all this time, after 16 years, after nearly a generation of the people being absolutely unsure of what the next step was, God shows up again. He sends his messengers. These two men brought the good news that God had not forgotten about them. God had not abandoned them. God had not been surprised or thrown off by the opposition they experienced. And God was not absent. God was with them and God's protection existed over them. And as a result, the temple project started again. This is a reminder that we can experience encouragement in God's presence in the midst of whatever opposition we're facing. What I find so interesting about this is that nothing actually seems to have changed in the people's circumstance. The decree to cease work had actually not been lifted. It appears that all the people needed was a reminder and encouragement that God was able to help them and was with them. And that God gave them the courage and passion to proceed once again with the construction. I wonder, is there something that has stalled out in your life? Is there a faint flicker of a hope that you carry around in your heart to see that thing come to fruition and yet you cannot imagine what it would actually look like? I don't know what that is for you. And maybe truly now is not the time for whatever reason to resurrect that idea. And I can't promise that God will ever resurrect that thing. But what if truly the only thing that you need right now is the courage to believe that once again something like that is even possible in your life? Could there be? I want you to seriously wrestle with this question. Could there be a word from the Lord for you here this morning, inviting you to consider opening yourself up again to the possibility of pursuing something in your life that has become stalled? Maybe for weeks or months or years. The story reminds us that God is not absent. The story of Nehemiah shows us that we can respond to opposition in prayer. 
We encounter prayers in the book of Nehemiah that he's inserted into the narrative, which are his attempt to kind of make sense and move through the opposition. They aren't prayers that he prays in the moment of the conversation, but they're kind of like editorially inserted into the text. And in response to the derision of Sanballat and his friends, Nehemiah, again, chapter 4, for example, records this prayer. Hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads. And may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt, O God. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger in front of the builders. I love that rawness of the prayer. Like, tell us what you really think, Nehemiah. They're bold. They're confident. They're full of anger and frustration. And when we experience opposition, God longs to hear from us whatever we have in our heart in that moment. Whatever we're thinking or feeling, God invites us to speak those things and to find solace and resolve in God who will ultimately address the situation. In verse 9, it mentions that the people prayed for protection while they undertook their work to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah does faithful work in cooperation with God. He prays, but he just doesn't sit around praying. God takes the initiative, but Nehemiah serves faithfully in the midst of opposition. And God's work needs both of those, both of those things. Nehemiah 4, verse 6 and verse 21. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. We worked, every, we worked early and late from sunset to sunrise, and half the men were always, were always on guard. So they took proper precautions, but they got to work. And our response to opposition may well be to simply keep doing what we're doing. To simply day by day, keep doing what we know God has called us to do. Making adjustments as necessary, but refusing to give up or be derailed. As I consider the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah and how they unfold, I realize it's very easy for us to take opposition personally. It's very easy It's almost a default, I would say, for us to become bitter, to become disillusioned, to become hopeless. And in the midst of that, it's important to recognize that the work is God's work, not our work. And it will be completed in God's time. When we really let this sink into our soul, it's immensely freeing because what it means is we don't have to defend ourselves. When we experience opposition... The opposition isn't ultimately to us if we're faithfully completing the Lord's work. It is an opposition to the Lord himself. And we don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to make things happen ourselves. We can have the confidence and trust in God's timing that will allow for our patient perseverance. This arrival of the prophets reminded the people that everything happens under God's watchful eye and with God's help. And the patience and perseverance bore fruit at the dedication of the temple, which was the culmination of God's promises in a time of great joy and celebration that's in Ezra, and likewise when the wall was finished in Nehemiah 6. The project was finished. Over many years, decades, the project finally became finished. But even that, the people going back to the promised land. That's maybe where the Old Testament ends, but that's not where the story ends. 
thousands of years after these servants of God persevered in faith and brought to completion the work that God had called them to do, we in God's church have become heirs of an even more important work that was completed by God's faithful servant, even God himself, Jesus Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection shows us, guarantees to us, that opposition will never ultimately stop the work of God. And as Jesus hung on this cross, on his cross, his followers looked at him, and they must have wondered if everything that they were expecting from God. They had spent three years with Jesus. Their hearts were on fire. They were prepared to do just about anything that God, uh, God had commanded of them and Jesus wanted of them because he was a friend and a teacher and a mentor. They must have been expecting so much. Everything they had been so incredibly sure that God the Father was going to do through Jesus— it evaporated. And they thought, surely, God, this cannot be the end. But when you're faced with a friend, a mentor, a leader dying in front of you, what else is there? It is the end. How could God's plans possibly move past this? Opposition seems to have won the day and they really had no idea what to do next. You see them huddled up in a room, the door locked because they're scared. You see them out there fishing because that's what they did before. They're literally at sea, these disciples, these friends of Jesus. Like, they don't know what to do. They're just kind of doing what they want to do in the moment and going back to what they've always done. They have no imagination for what has come next. But then... Jesus rises from the dead, and he meets his disciples on the seashore. He meets his disciples in the locked room. This is John 20, chapters 20 and 21. He shows up, and he gives them a new assignment. That's Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Go take the gospel to the nations, making disciples of everybody who hears it. And in those moments, Jesus' followers recognize that opposition to God's work does not and never will have the final say, and that God's work will be completed in God's time and in God's way. And in fact, the, dis the disciples discover that the plan may even be bigger than what they had first thought or imagined. So this is the word to us this morning, Jericho, take heart, church, that whatever each of us and we together as a community face, we are safely and firmly in the midst of God's plan that has already come to completion in the person of Jesus Christ and continues to unfold into its fullness in our lives and in the world. May this give us confidence and courage to faithfully serve God, whatever may come. I want to invite the worship team to come back and lead us in some closing songs. I'll remind you that um, if you want someone to pray with, there will be people in the back with uh, prayer team name tags. You can seek some of those people out, and they will be happy to pray with you. Also, if you're uh, viewing online, prayer at jerichoridge.com. We're happy to receive those prayer requests. Um, and to pray for you and with you.